Well, hey, everybody, so great to see you, whether you're here in the room or joining us online. So ha happy that you could be with us. And before we go any farther, I just have to confess, I did not sleep well last night, okay? And I, I think it's because I choked on humble pie. <laughs> so Michigan State fans, well done, all right? Mel Tucker, welcome to the Big Ten, and uh, we wish it wasn't in the big house that you got your first victory, but hey, that's, we're, we'll just, we're moving on from here. So anyway, today we get to continue a series that we've called Virtual Israel, and as many of you know, uh, it's content that's been marinating in my head and heart for about a year now in preparation for Keystone's trips that we had planned to take to Israel. Actually, we were supposed to, a bunch of us were supposed to be there right now, uh, both this past spring and then in the fall. Um, and those trips obviously didn't happen because of the pandemic. So this fall, I decided to do the next best thing and to take all of you on a trip to Israel virtually. And so here's how it works if you're joining us for the first time. I'll, I'll, each week uh, during the series, I'll introduce you to a site that was included on the itinerary for our trips. And then I'll teach some of the content that I had planned to present at that location. And as we've said all along, these sites served as the setting for some iconic Old Testament stories, stories that ultimately set the stage for Jesus. And so today, as we get to continue to follow the story of ancient Israel, we get to explore a site that served as one of the most dramatic transition points in their entire history, the Jordan River. Now, the Jordan is without question Israel's most famous river. And uh, fun fact, the Hebrew name Jordan means to go down. And it's a fitting description because the river descends over 10,000 feet uh, in elevation over the 90 miles it runs as the crow flies as it flows from its source on a mountain near the Lebanese-Syrian border called Hermon all the way down to the Dead Sea. Uh, because of the rapid descent, the Jordan was one of the fastest flowing rivers in the ancient world. And today, um, because, if you go there today though, because of modern Israel's need for water, uh, the government has largely dammed up the river near where it exits the Sea of Galilee. Uh, there's even a famous site near the Sea of Galilee where tourists can get baptized and walk away with a commemorative t-shirt, okay, for a small fee, of course, but it's right near the dam. So you see in the picture, uh, here's the dam just downstream from the Sea of Galilee. And this is, of course, uh, where most of your friends that have been there get their picture taken after being uh, baptized. Anyway, one of the most surprising things about the Jordan River today uh, and really in the past, it's never been very wide. In most places, it's only 50 feet or so from one side of the bank to the other. Uh, and this surprises people the first time they see it because most of us imagine the mighty Jordan River as maybe like the Hudson River as it enters the ocean near New York City or maybe, uh, or maybe the Mississippi River where it enters the Gulf of Mexico. But honestly, when you think of the Jordan River, think of like the skinnier parts of the thorn apple. Like, like between the dams in Ada and Cascade. Uh, and nevertheless, the Jordan is an incredibly significant uh, biblical image because the Bible's authors mention it almost 200 times in both the Old and New Testament, and probably not for the reason you might expect, at least historically. Here's what I mean. Many ancient people considered the key rivers in their homelands to be sacred. Think like the Nile River in Egypt or the Ganges River in India. But, but Israel never did that. Instead, they saw the Jordan, both literally and metaphorically, as an obstacle that had to be crossed, something that stood between them and their future. And the reason that this, they began to think this way 
is an account from the biblical narrative that we get to unpack with our time today. It's an account of the day when the entire nation of Israel crossed the Jordan River on their way to claim the land that God had promised to their ancestor, Abraham. Uh, here's the setup. So after leaving, leading Israel through the deserts of the Sinai Peninsula for 40 years, God brought them to the banks of the Jordan, close to the spot where the river enters the Dead Sea. And decades had passed since they had been rescued from slavery in Egypt and had entered a covenant or special relationship with God at Mount Sinai. And so during their time in the desert or in, in the wilderness, the authors will also call it, uh, they had come into their God-given identity. Uh, they knew who they were called to be in the world and that they had been set apart from other nations for the benefit of those other nations. God had invited them to be a kingdom of priests who would show the world what it looked like when a group of people lived beyond natural selfish impulses and stepped into a life that was led by God. And so Israel's season in the desert had taught them to trust God in intangible ways and to trust him alone as their provider and their ultimate hope. God had miraculously supplied daily for their needs, bread from heaven called manna to eat and water to drink in a land where really there isn't any water. And because of that experience, they came to the banks of the Jordan River that day, ready to enter the next chapter of their story. So before we get to the text, I want you just to imagine this moment with me. As the people stood on the banks of the river, gazing into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, uh, the desert, both literally and figuratively, stood behind them. And in front of them stood their future. All that separated them was a river that formed a physical, metaphorical, and cultural barrier. And I say that because the people who lived on the other side of the Jordan River knew nothing of the God of Abraham. Uh, they maybe had heard some stories, but they had no experience with him. For generations, their religious lives have been organized around the worship of the pagan god Baal. And here's how it looks in English. I had a, uh, a history of religion professor at the University of Michigan who always called it Baal, which I thought was awesome. More fun to say, but we'll call it Baal because it's not so distracting. Uh, Baal was a god that the people on the other side believed had authority over water and rain and wind and lightning. So we can only assume that as those people on the other side looked across the Jordan at the approaching nation of Israel, they would have been convinced that Baal would somehow use the waters of the Jordan to protect them from being invaded. But God, as we'll soon see, had other plans. Uh, the author records God's instructions to Joshua, who was Israel's leader following the death of Moses. Here's what God said to Joshua that day. He said, tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Now, many of you are familiar with the aforementioned Ark of the Covenant because of this guy. Huh? Some of you were thinking Moses. No. Right. Indiana Jones. And as you may recall from Raiders of the Lost Ark, shortly after receiving the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, God instructed Abraham's descendants to build him an ark and to place in the ark the stone tablets on which were written the original Ten Commandments. Now, it's worth noting that ark building was common in ancient religions. God was requesting, God requesting an ark uh, to place a covenant inside wouldn't have surprised the people of ancient Israel at all. But, but anyway, uh, for the next 40 years, the ark became prominent in the life of the nation of Israel as they wandered through the desert, as they were led through the desert, rather. 
Uh, the ark was carried by the Jewish priests in front of the people of Israel as God led them each day. And now at the end of their season in the desert, God intended to use the ark to go before them as they crossed the Jordan and entered the promised land. As the narrative continues, God makes Joshua an incredible promise. He says to them, as soon as the priests who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, which is like a little subtle, not so subtle poke at Baal, uh, set foot in the Jordan, its waters flowing downstream will be cut off and stand up in a heap. The author goes on, so when the people broke camp to cross the Jordan, the priest carrying the Ark of the Covenant went ahead of them. So essentially, God tells the priest to lead the people to the river, and they lead the people to the river. And then as the account continues, the author makes a really interesting observation. And, and if, if you're reading it quickly, you may not catch it, but here's what he records. He says, now the Jordan is at flood stage all during the harvest. And this detail is key to understanding this moment. Because Bible nerds will tell us that in ancient times, the Jordan River near the Dead Sea would have run fast and deep, especially when it was at flood stage. In other words, as soon as these priests stepped into the waters that day, they would be in over their heads. The current would have been relentless, which means if I had been one of the priests there that day, I'd want to raise my hand and suggest a slightly different order to God's plan. Uh, something like this. Okay, God, um, how about you stop the river first and then we'll stop, step in? That's way safer. It's way easier. Less risk of drowning. Way better as far as I can see, right? I mean, if I had been one of the priests, I'd remind God what he had done the last time a significant body of water had kept Israel from her future. Forty years earlier, when a few days after being rescued from Egypt, God led his people to the shores of the Red Sea. And that time, the people had been terrified because the armies of Egypt were pursuing them. And that time, God had instructed Moses to stretch out his hands over the Red Sea. And then God had divided the waters. The children of Abraham had walked across on dry ground. That time, God had provided what the people needed without requiring any active faith from them. So if I had been one of the priests, I'd present God with an alternative plan. I'd invite him to make the first move. And I think in response, God would have said something like this. Yeah, I remember all of that, but here's the thing. That was then. See, that was before you had a relationship with me. That was before you knew me. That was before you learned to trust me in the desert. I, I mean, when I rescued you from slavery, you weren't ready to be my people yet. If we're being honest, you were a little more than an unruly mob of idol-worshiping former slaves. No offense, right? So, so yeah, then I did everything for you, and that's what you needed then, but this isn't then, this is now. And so I, I'm convinced that, that God that day saw the crossing of the Jordan as something like a final exam for Israel after four decades in trust school in the desert. He wanted them to demonstrate that they had learned to fully and finally trust him. So, so God essentially says to Joshua, okay, I'll divide the river. I'll make a way for you to cross whatever it is that separates you from accomplishing what I want to do through you, but nothing will happen until you put your foot in the water. And as the account continues, we learn that the people had, in fact, developed enough faith to believe God for the impossible. And the author records for us, as soon as the priests who carried the ark, reached the Jordan, and their feet touched the water's edge. 
the water from upstream stopped flowing. So the people crossed over opposite Jericho. He goes on. The priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stopped in the middle of the Jordan and stood on dry ground. Well, all of Israel passed by until the whole nation had completed the crossing on dry ground. And just notice something with me. It, it's like, you wonder if the priests had refused to step into the rushing waters that day, would they have missed the miracle? I think at least theoretically, they never would have left their season in the desert. They never would have experienced the promised land. And so in a way then, God was testing them to see if they were ready for their future. If they trusted him enough to take an uncomfortable step and to take a calculated risk. Well, I find it fascinating. This isn't the only time this theme surfaces in the Bible. If you're reading carefully and looking for it, like over and over and over again, the Bible's authors record God inviting people to step out in faith before miraculously intervening. And one of my favorite examples comes from one of the accounts of Jesus' life. And interestingly enough, it once again involves water. A man named Matthew, one of Jesus' first disciples, records that one day Jesus sends the 12 disciples across the Sea of Galilee in a boat while he remained on land to pray. Here's a picture of the Sea of Galilee on a calm day, but we quickly learned that on this day it was anything but calm. And by the time evening came, the disciples were somewhere in the middle of the lake, struggling to row against wind and waves. And Matthew tells us that they battled almost all night until just before daybreak, when something really unexpected happened. Matthew tells us, shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. And when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified, no kidding. They said, it's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. And, and, and I love the story so far, right? Because so far we seem to have learned that Jesus can walk on water, which is really cool. But to see what makes this story incredible, at least from our perspective, we need to keep reading. Because as the narrative continues, Peter, who was Jesus' oldest disciple and most impulsive disciple, you might even say bravest disciple, says something really surprising. He calls out to Jesus and he says, Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. In other words, Jesus, I believe that with you, anything is possible. And I know that my goal as your disciple is to be just like you. And so, and forgive me if I'm stretching here, um, if you're walking on the water, then maybe I can too. And I have no idea how this works, but I have enough trust, I have enough faith in you to take the first step if you'll invite me. So if you tell me I can, I'll step out on the water. And just imagine what the other disciples thought in this moment, like as Peter's words settled in, right? Something like, um, <clears throat> who does he think he is, right? I mean, just because Jesus can walk on water doesn't mean that we can walk on water. And as I recall, I don't think Peter is a very strong swimmer because I remember when I was a few years younger watching him in swim lessons, it did not go well, okay? And I know he's a fisherman, but that often had some awkward moments as well. So, so I mean, Peter, who do you think you are? But then before this internal dialogue that I've just imagined completes, Jesus responds to Peter with one word. 
come. And I can only imagine what happened in Peter's stomach at that moment. He simultaneously went, yes, and oh. Jesus looks at Peter and he says, listen, Peter, if you're ready, it's time to get out of the boat. It's time for you to risk. It's time for your faith to grow. It's time for your faith to be stretched. You're ready for more than comfortable, Peter. So come. Matthew continues. He says, then Peter got down out of the boat walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. So Jesus invites Peter to do something that, that, that seems impossible. He invites him to take a step and to risk failure. But see, that invitation also holds incredible potential for something miraculous to happen. Because it was Jesus who said to Peter, come. Now, like many of you, I've heard this story more times than I can remember. And because of that, I know that as the account continues, Peter begins to doubt and Peter begins to sink. And so it can be tempting for us to criticize Peter as being impulsive and lacking faith, right? But see, we can't forget the fact that before all the doubting and sinking happens, Peter walked on water. He took a risk. He accepted Jesus' invitation and he got out of the boat. He chose adventure the adventure of faith over the predictable and the comfortable. And his life would never be the same. Now, honestly, I can't help but wonder if there's something in these stories for us. I've worked as a pastor now for more than 20 years. And during that time, I've noticed in some of your lives that, and I would never talk about you without asking your permission first, just so we're clear. So don't everybody, ooh, anxiety down. Okay. I've noticed that God is often pleased to act in someone's life after they take a significant step of faith towards calculated risk and away from comfort. People that reach the edge of a flooded river that's blocking their path to their future, and instead of waiting on God to remove every barrier they step in, and they get their feet wet, and, and they trust that God will provide whatever it is, that they need. And, and there's something about that radical commitment that seems to activate divine potential and provision in their lives. And to be fair, not every time, but it's like I've seen it enough that there seems to be potential. I, I think about a couple who a few years back dreamed of adopting internationally. They had gone on a mission trip together and had seen kids in, in terrible living situations. And, and while on the plane ride back home, they both, they both were sort of reflecting they both were sort of praying, and, they, and then they kind of got to the spot where they looked at each other, and they said, I think we're supposed to do this. And then beyond that, like, I think God wants us to do this. And so they began to pray, and they read books on adoption, and they researched adoption agencies, and they started to interview adoption agencies. And then, then came the day when, when they were in a meeting, and they asked the question, you know, how much does something like this cost? And without missing a beat, the adoption counselor said, oh, it's somewhere between twenty dollars and $40,000. And they look at each other, and their stomachs dropped. And as they recalled the story for me later, they said, you know, we didn't have twenty dollars to $40,000. They said, you know, we were young, and we had student loans, 
and we had just purchased our first home and our minivan needed new brakes and tires. It's like they conspired against us. It's like without warning, they came to a river of uncertainty that suddenly and completely separated them from the path that they felt like they were supposed to walk. So not knowing what else to do, they just put their dreams of adoption on hold. That is until a few weeks later when the adoption agency called and asked if they were confident in their desire to adopt and if money were the only thing keeping them from moving forward. And when they affirmed that, yes, they wanted to adopt, but yes, their financial situation made that impossible, the agency suggested that they, su they send out letters to family and friends. International adoption, they learned, could actually be a crowdfunded opportunity. Not every time, but sometimes. And, and so they looked at each other and, and they prayed again and they said, well, if we do this, everyone's going to know that that's what we want to do. And then what if we can't do it? And then everyone's going to think like we failed. And... But then they thought, maybe it's time for us to take a step. And, and so a week later, letters went out. They got their feet wet. They stepped out of the boat. And as they said to me, Later, sitting at Starbucks over a triple decaf almond milk latte, um, God provided. He made a way where there had been no way. But he didn't do it until they stepped out into the waters of uncertainty. I'll never forget when they looked across the table at me and, and said something, and it was like one of those somethings that was so good I wrote it down on a napkin for such a time as this. Here's what they said. I hate to think that if we had never taken that step, we would have missed the miracle. I hate to think that if we had never taken that step, right, if we had never stepped away from comfortable, if we had never taken a calculated risk, if we never moved in the direction that we really sensed God wanted us to go, we would have missed the miracle. And I remember sitting there that day thinking, I totally get that because if I'm honest, whenever this topic comes up, I also think of my own story. Because around 20 years ago, I had a moment when I had to decide whether or not to get my feet wet and to get out of the boat as well. As many of you know, my undergraduate degree is in biology. And as a kid, I always dreamed of being a doctor. And so I did all the things you're supposed to do to become a doctor. I studied, like, a lot, a little neurotically, for those that knew me back then. And I volunteered in the hospital, and I was an assistant in a research lab working on the impact of physical stress on the hormone axis of sheep. It's a good story for another day, all right? Yeah. Um, but anyway, the, I, the day I graduated uh, at, from the University of Michigan, an intimate affair that takes place each April in the big house, so there you have that, right? Um, I knew what I wanted to do with my life. But, but then, then something happened that I wasn't expecting. I came back to Grand Rapids, and I met a few pastors who were rethinking church, and I found them fascinating. So much so that months after leaving college, I joined the staff of a delightfully underfunded church plant called Keystone. And over the next 15 months, two significant things happened. One, I became convinced that God was interested in me becoming a pastor. And two, I got into medical school. Though, though I don't think I saw it at the time, God's vision for my life was on a collision course with my vision for my life. And eventually, I enrolled in medical school and for two weeks. 
So if you have a thing, don't ask me. I don't know. Um, but they were two of the hardest weeks of my life because each night I would lie awake in my apartment staring at the ceiling, playing out scenarios for my future, and each night I would conclude that people who get into medical school don't drop out of medical school. They stay in medical school, and eventually they have job security and stable income and predictable retirement plans, while pastors, on the other hand, dot, 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 right? And I remember thinking, who in their right minds would leave medical school to work for a church when they have a degree in biology and no biblical training whatsoever? And what sort of church would hire such a person? Well, that's where I'd land each night, and then the following morning, the questions would come rushing back. And, and reflecting on those weeks now, with the clarity that comes with 20 years of hindsight, I feel like I was a little bit like the nation of Israel. Deep down, I knew what God wanted me to do with my life. But I had so many questions, and I had so many doubts I mean, those that know me would tell you I'm a planner. I like comfort and safety and predictability and financial security. I'm the guy who would say to God, hey, God, first you stop the river and then I'm happy to walk across. But that wasn't how it worked for me. I, I couldn't shake the sense of call despite my greatest efforts to do so. And, and so eventually the day came when I packed up my things and I drove back across the state to begin to train to be a pastor. And, and to be honest, it has been the adventure I was made for. I mean, even during a global pandemic, I've never regretted my decision. God has shown up in my life in ways I never imagined possible. And he's been one step ahead of me every step of the way. And, and my faith has moved in many ways from, from what I would describe as black and white to color. But it only happened when I was willing to take a step away from comfortable and, and to do something that I really, really was afraid to do. So, so that's a little bit of my story, but, but I got to ask you a question. You know, when was the last time you got your feet wet? When was the last time you said yes to something that you suspected God was asking you to do, even though it was a move away from what was comfortable? I mean, to be, I mean I've already confessed this is my own disposition, but it's natural for people to seek comfort. We want our lives to be manageable and secure and predictable. And honestly, I think that's what helps us you know, maintain the illusion that we're really in control. But, but here's the tragedy. I think many people leave this earth with unrealized potential because they never stepped out in the adventure of faith. It's like maybe, and, and again, I'll, I'll take the image from the conversation with the, the couple that adopted internationally, maybe they've even missed their miracle. And here's the thing. Whenever this happens, not only do they miss out, but so do the rest of us. Because there are times when, when God invites us to do something that requires courage and faith, that we step out and we risk failure. And it's not until we do that he meets us in that place. And so if you have something you suspect God is inviting you to do, even in the middle of a pandemic, right? 
but you've never done it, my encouragement to you would be to do it. Take the first step. Risk. Jump. Get your feet wet. And when you do, you may find that you'll get to experience a little bit of what it feels like when your, your faith intersects with God's faithfulness. You get to experience a little bit of what it's like to walk on water. All right, so uh, that brings us to the end of, of our time together. Uh, but my hope is that all of this sparks conversation, not only internal dialogue, but conversation with whoever it is that you do life. So what I want to do before I let you go uh, is just give you three questions to hopefully uh, spark some conversation in your life. Number one goes like this. Um, where in your life is fear or comfort keeping you from trusting God? And I think we, if we're honest, we all would have, I mean, don't think you're deficient if you have an area. That's all of us. Uh, number two goes like this. What's one risk you can take to help catalyze growth in your faith? That idea that when we stretch beyond what's comfortable, that's often where we find that our faith grows. And, and then number three goes like this. How might a refusal to risk rob you of the opportunity to experience the miraculous? So with that, I'd like to invite you to stand, and I'll close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the way that you love us right where we are, but you desire to move us from where we are into a brighter future and a bigger faith. And we confess that we don't like to stretch. And so I pray for courage. I pray that you would make us brave. And that as we step out, we would find you there ready to meet our needs in ways that we will later reflect on and identify as miraculous. And so we thank you for preserving the story of your people who you sent on a mission for all of us. Thank you for how their story still speaks into our story thousands of years later. I pray that you would open our eyes this week to whatever it is that you're calling us to do and give us the courage to take the next step. For this moment, we just pray for your grace and your peace to be on us all. In the matchless name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We'll see you next week for part six of Virtual Israel.